listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Patience is waiting for an expected change while realizing your lack of control. That's what patience is. Impatience is waiting for an expected change while vainly trying to control it, trying to make it happen. And sometimes our waiting in life is weighty. It's just heavy stuff. It's hearing back about a job interview. It's sitting outside the surgery door. It's getting those final grades back on that semester that everything's kind of riding on. It's anticipating that first child to come or maybe waiting on true love can be a long road. But waiting can also expose our lack of patience, expose our lack of steadfast faith. Anyone struggle with a stoplight that won't budge? I think Stephen Teddington was behind me the other day when I blew through a red light because I just couldn't stand it anymore. It was too much for me, folks. I just couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Long lines. We throw pity parties when our phones won't load. We are not the most patient people. But the thing is, our whole culture is kind of drifting away from patience as a virtue. Look at this graph with me. Patience is actually three times less popular than it was 200 years ago. That's a Google search of how often the word patience appears in written language. It's really something that's starting to disappear from our culture as we give in to becoming more and more an impatient people. As one author puts it, the modern world's values look something like this. The world is full of speed and busyness. Therefore, everything slow and everything that has pace must be bad must not be working. If the world's full of convenience, then everything hard must be bad, right? Why isn't it easier? If the world is full of entertainment and noise, then everything that's boring, everything that's quiet, must be bad. And so slowly we've demonized that anything that's slow, anything that's hard, anything that's long-term, anything that involves any suffering, anything that's tough, anything that's boring is now okay to just be impatient with. We have normalized being malcontent. We've normalized complaining as a way of life. We've normalized blaming others because we're not entertained enough or blaming others because things aren't happening in our lives enough. And we think it's normal just to give up or be hopeless. We think it's normal to do as Neil Postman coined, amuse ourselves to death. See, Neil Postman put out there that we live in such an impatient society that we've given ourselves over to just petty entertainments to distract ourselves from meaning in life. And it leaves us devoid of life, a kind of lifeless, just droning on through life. But the thing is, he wrote that book in 1987 long before we put phones that dwelt in our hands to distract us and flip through four-second reels because paying attention to the big stuff is way too much work. But here's the truth. God is calling us to a far different life today through this passage. That doesn't have to be our life. We don't have to amuse ourselves to death or grow impatient with everything that happens. The life God is calling us to is not defined by small amusements. It doesn't wander around with an impatient soul in an instant society, but rather God is calling you to a life defined by steadfast faith 
that suffers with patience because the Lord is coming and the Lord is compassionate and full of mercy, church. Look with me at verse 10 and 11. Look what it says. It says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, when he says brothers, he means brothers and sisters, the church, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Remember the prophets, y'all. Often they talked about things that they didn't get to see happen in their lifetime. What a image of steadfast faith. And usually people didn't like the prophets either. They had this hard, horrible, tough life to keep proclaiming the truth, even though they didn't get to see it happen. But they were these people, a model force of steadfast faith. Verse 11, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast, those who did not give up. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. When I first became a Christian, I called him Job for a long time. So if you do, you're my people. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, James is returning to his teaching in chapter one. It feels like a long time ago. It was just September, but the Lord is making us a steadfast people through the difficulties of life. Difficulties in your life doesn't mean you're off track with the Lord. It might mean you're right on track with the Lord and this world is broken and this world is hard and this world will knock you down. But the Lord's will is it wouldn't knock you out because you're trusting in him and that your life isn't about your trials. Can I get an amen, church? Hang with me deep here. It might be cloudy and moody outside, but don't bring that here. We got the Lord teaching us from the scriptures here. I'm not the Lord, but the Lord's working it, hopefully. All right? Amen. Church, amen. Thank you. Thank you, y'all, one guy. Listen, the trials of your life are not the point of your life. The trials aren't the center of your life. If you're a Christian, your life is about Jesus, and that changes how you see your trials. It changes the story. Your life remains about Jesus walking with you through these difficult things. Your suffering isn't meant to sink you, but is meant to sanctify you and make you like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there's two reasons this passage gives us to be patient and enduring as steadfast people, whatever you want to call it. They go together. The first is that the Lord is coming soon. He drops it back to back to back in verse 7, 8, 9. The Lord is coming soon so you can be steadfast. And second, verse 11 says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's a way of saying God's actually good. Not in a subjective sense where we get to choose what is good and not, but in an objective sense that God is the true and only good. See, as Christians, we need to redefine what good is. Good is who the Lord is and what the Lord does. That is what is truly, truly, truly good. And when this passage tells us that God himself is returning soon three different times, we should hear that and not grow bored, but grow excited that the best, good, highest, most good thing in the world is coming back for his people. There couldn't be better news to hear about the future. We get excited when we hear a package is getting delivered. We got a much bigger, better thing coming into our life in the future. The only good ones coming back to his people. And when the Lord comes, it means he'll right every wrong. 
It means you'll wipe every tear from our eyes. That every longing for true justice, every longing for true redemption will be absolutely fulfilled and he will renew all things starting with us. Starting with our physical bodies. Starting with our soul from the inside out when the flesh falls away and you're made new in the glory and purpose and the love of that Savior. That he's been handcrafting you as a masterpiece your entire life. That's what Ephesians 2 ends with. That the point of your salvation is that God would make you new through this life. He would rise you from the dead and then he would lavish his love and glory on you for the rest of eternity. We got a God that's so good that the point of our salvation is for him to pour on love on us for the rest of eternity. That's what we're waiting for. That's what the Bible talks about. Almost every letter of the New Testament has this reference to the Lord is coming back. We don't like to talk about it because people have put it on billboards and been all crazy and we think it's for the Looney Tunes. It's not for the Looney Tunes. It's for the follower of Jesus who loved this man who's coming back for us. We treat the second coming as something far off and maybe a good thing when Scripture says bank your whole life on it and it's the chief reason given over and over and over that you can be patient when things are going bad. Imagine, church, imagine with me, who's the best person you know? It might be grandma, it might be your brother, it might be your mom, your dad, your best friend, maybe your spouse. It's definitely my spouse. Text Elena, she's serving in kids, that Justin said the best person he knows is Elena. Everyone text, it's fine. You can look at your phone. All right? At an absolute minimum, just so our minds can wrap our minds around it, the best person you know, Jesus is at least 10,000 times more powerful and 10,000 times better in character than that person. More like a trillion times a trillion squared times a trillion. But just so we can grasp, the kindest person you know is more or less evil before God. That's who's coming back, church. Coming back for us, and he knows our name. He says it's graven on his hands. How that works, I don't know, but he's God. He knows you, and he's coming. That's why your trial doesn't have to dominate your life. There's a God who's a good master who can walk you through and coming back for you. We are given the example of Job in this passage to see what steadfast faith looks like. Because when we're sure that everything in the future will change for our good, we can live differently today. When we're sure everything in the future will change for our good, we can live differently today. And Job becomes this example for us, but you got to remember Job's story. Tragedy comes to him seemingly out of nowhere. He loses his family. He loses his wealth. He eventually loses his health. He has three friends show up and they're like, all right, at the start. And then not so great as they overthink and overrationalize and oversuggest him. So now he's in trouble and has these troubling friends. But Job refuses to curse God. And when God shows up, God tells him, Job, I'm God. I have unlimited power. And just realize you're a man and you're not going to get it all. And Job says, yes. And it's a model of steadfast faith. Doesn't mean you understand it. We like to think, oh, I'm going to be steadfast. I'm going to figure out God's plan in all these things. We don't know. And steadfast faith means you can have faith in God even if you don't understand what's happening in your life. Our faithfulness is not contingent or relying on us knowing how the plan works out. 
Job lived the blessed life, which doesn't mean you get all the things in life, but rather you get the God of all the things in life. That you can live a life with and under God is what it means to be blessed. And we can trust God to be ste- that we can be steadfast even when we don't understand. Because being as steadfast in faith is about trusting our good God has an ultimate purpose, his own glory. And that his glory is shown in us as he reveals himself to be compassionate and merciful to his people in a broken world. God gets the most glory by showing off himself in this broken world. That's what Jesus is. He's bringing the compassion and mercy in God down to the street level for us. And that's a God you can trust what he's doing, even if you don't understand it. That's how God gets glory is when we are steadfast in faith, it magnifies the God of compassion and mercy that we can be sure we're going to get mercy and compassion in this life and the next, regardless of how things turn out right now. Verse 11 is telling us when we are asking why God and find ourselves wondering what on earth God is doing, we can trust that God's purpose is for his own glory, which means mercy and compassion is on its way for us no matter what. And this isn't just Job. This is the Bible story over and over and over and over again. That God's glory is magnified through our steadfast faith under trial. Look at Noah. God's hanging out. God in his mercy says, it's time to build an ark. Noah must look like a crazy man, building a gigantic ark, getting friendly with all these animals, builds the ark, and God's compassion saves Noah and his family. And it's a story of his steadfast faith. Abraham steadfastly travels to a new country at God's merciful direction, and Abraham finds compassion among trial after trial after trial of his life. His life doesn't get easier following God's commands, but God does draw near to him and does come true on every single promise in that man's life. Think of Joseph's story. He's sold into slavery by his own brothers. He's in jail in a foreign land, but he remains steadfast. Even his story gets crazier and crazier, but he receives the mercy of God, becomes the deliverer of a nation and the nation he came from, and then gets reconciled back to those brothers, all by the mercy and compassion of God, working through the steadfast faith of his life. When anyone would look at his life and say, this guy, he's not blessed. No. He was. Ruth acts in steadfast faith after her husband dies, throwing herself to the mercy of God in her loss, and he, she receives the kind compassion of her God over and over. The kindness of God. Hannah was childless and steadfastly prayed and find compassion and was given a son Samuel to be a priest and judge. David was steadfast in serving his God's purpose in his life when he finds mercy before Goliath, then mercy from evil King Saul kind of starting to wig out. And then he eventually finds mercy when David blows it big time, committing some of the ugliest sins we can put together in a murder-adultery scheme. Look who gives him compassion and mercy once again. Our story of compassionate, merciful God is the story of Scripture. And those stories are meant to encourage us to say, I have a God of compassion and mercy that I can put my faith in and take my faith out of anything else. 
This God is coming back for us, whether we die first or the Lord returns. Everyone who has steadfast faith in Christ will be received by the God of mercy and compassion. And James details three practical ways to live with steadfast faith. Look with me at verse 7 and 8. First, steadfast faith means having patience like a farmer. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. He can't make it happen. You can't make rain happen. Until it receives the early and late rains, you also be patient. The Lord is coming so we can wait patiently. In the first century Israel, they only had two seasons of significant rain. So the farmer would have to go out, plow the fields, plant the seed, spread manure, do all the farmer stuff. I know we have like zero farmers in the crowd. I'm probably the closest with my chicken hobby. Or maybe it's Kelsey and Holly as master indoor plant moms, right? You got to water the plants. But here's the thing. He could work all day, that farmer, but the big growth ain't come until the rains come. There is a model of patience in farming. Even though we're not farming people, we can learn from this by watching something simple grow that somewhat out of our control builds patience in our life. That's why it's good to watch things grow. It's good to watch a puppy. It's good to watch children. It's good to watch plants. It's good to watch the trees in their season to just go, huh. I'm not totally in control of these things, but they grow anyways. But man, I can be patient and learn to be patient day by day. And here's what's dangerous for us as we plant Citizens Church and we're living out kind of our toddler days together as a church plant. If our individual hearts are impatient, then we as a church will be impatient. Pastor Zach Exwine says this, that the most Uh, The chief sin of the American church is impatience. And we see it everywhere that we're willing to look. We grow impatient. We want shorter services. We grow impatient. We want our personal growth to be more of a microwave, not a crock pot, right? We want to have deep friends and community group after two months. And man, I'm going to be honest, good friends at the adult level, that's like a two-year minimum journey. That's just to get to good friend, not deep friend. Because you're an adult and it takes time. It's going to take hard work and vulnerability and all those things to mix and work hard together. We want ministry results to be like fast food, not the slow good fruit of the Spirit of God, nor the cultivation of farmers. Church, we cannot be an impatient people because if I say it all the time, if we rush it, man, we're going to ruin it. If we rush it, we're going to ruin it. This is a slow burn, a slow cook. This is farming, whatever you want to call it. We use the word cultivation on purpose, that our mission to cultivate a diverse community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek the good of Birmingham, we can be real intentional. We can work hard. We can do it with all of our heart. But man, we're going to need some early, late, middle, next year rains to pour and pour and pour and pour to see all the fruit we want over the next hundred years. I pray for rain all the time. And I thank God for all the rain that's come. And I want you to join me in that. Cultivating means we must strengthen our hearts. We must build up that internal strength of faith in the Lord. And that's James's second command. Look at verse eight with me. It says, establish or strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
And we talk here at Citizens, whenever the Bible uses the word kind of heart and soul, it all means the same thing. It's the emotional, spiritual center of you. It's the vital thing that makes Catherine Jordan, Catherine Jordan. And we talk about this way as a garden. Once upon a time, your garden of your heart was dead and cold and had no good fruit. The soil was black and poison and had, actually, black soil is healthy soil. Maybe it's like blue or toxic or green or has like nuclear waste in it. And then you met the gospel and God put good soil in there and good seeds and good things started to pop right out of that garden. And now your life is seeing the fruit of that garden as God plants new seeds, his word, new relationships in your life. But God is still pruning all those fruits and crops still pruning them back to produce even more fruit like a good gardener. And he's still pulling out thorn bushes that are still there and still changing out that green sludge of toxic soil, pulling that out while he's there too. And that's what it means to strengthen and establish your heart that we're not just good because we're in Christ, but in Christ means we start growing and producing a crop. And to strengthen your heart today, I want to give you a little question. I want to invite you to ask, how does impatience infect you? What kind of thorny bushes pop out? Here's, here's a couple classic ways that we deal with impatience. There's the let it out. Someone doesn't drive very well in front of you. What do you do? Beep, 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 beep. And then Elena hits me in the arm. That's how it works. You let it out. It's like a, a young child stomping their feet. They're immediately impatient. They're immediately mad. This is more of a, uh, stuff it down. This is more of the, the next phase. You're, you're not, you'd say I'm so patient, but deep down you're counting every single impatience in your heart. You're boiling at the DMV line. You're boiling at Publix and it's starting to hurt and hurt and hurt. And then one day you blow up. You're in your car beating the steering wheel because things went too slow and you're off schedule. And you feel like a crazy person listening to rage music in your car and driving too fast, all because everything built up at work for way too long. Or three, you leak it out slowly. And nothing bothers you, nothing bothers you, but the sarcastic comments are always kind of rolling. Cynicism has slipped in. Passive aggressive comments to everyone you're impatient in your life kind of leak out all the time. And church, I just want to give examples of why is the Lord talking about patience and suffering? It's because, man, it's toxic to us. If we can't deal with the delays and suffering in our life, it will eat us alive. Slowly but surely, pick your way. As we look at these things, we need Jesus to do surgery because our struggle with patience is not circumstantial, it's theological. Your struggle with patience isn't circumstantial about the stuff in your life. It's about our God. We are struggling with what we believe about God. Think about it. Frustrated in your circumstances in life? Guess who controls all those circumstances? Look at Daniel 2 with me. I love this passage. It just shows the absolute control and goodness of God. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. When we rage against our circumstances, when we rage against all the things that make me impatient in my life, be sure, church, I'm raging, you're raging against a big God and struggling with what do we believe in his goodness in our life. 
It's not that different from the garden. We believe God's holding out on us just like Eve and Adam believe that God's holding out on them. We must strengthen our hearts by resisting the enemies of this patient hope in our good God. Namely, I want to name two. Here's the stuff you got to pull out is cynicism and resentment. Cynicism is losing hope in the future and it leaves you both impatient and full of inaction. Because if you have no hope that things will ever change, well, why do anything? You're still mad at your life, but why fix it? It's broke and you don't want to fix it. That's when cynicism sets in. It robs all hope and joy for the future. Its twin is resentment, which believes you believe you have no hope that someone else will change. Whether it's a family member or your marriage or a friendship, you stop believing the other person can change. And when you stop believing the other person can change, backdoor, you give up hope that you can change too. That's when impatience starts to rot you all the way down. Resentment will rob the joy of any relationship. It's about the most toxic thing in a relationship to believe the other person can't change. By the way, I can't either. In Christ, church, we can live with strong hearts, full of patient hope, and not submit to sinful cynicism or resentment. The third encouragement of James is to refuse to grumble. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We can refuse to grumble simply because the Lord is coming, because he's the judge and we're simply not. Whew, doesn't it feel good that you don't have to grumble and complain? We have a culture that loves to do it, put people on blast on social media. But we as Christians can say, you know what? I don't have to grumble because the Lord's going to settle all the scores. It doesn't mean we don't speak up against injustice. It doesn't mean we don't tell the truth. We got to do those things. But we don't have to grumble and kick the ground and complain and beat ourselves up and get down, but rather say, yeah, the Lord's going to settle all that one day. And I have faith in him. So church, we can choose not to grumble against each other. We can choose not to... to Choose against grumbling against leaders. We can choose against grumbling against those you lead at work or the people over you at work or beside you because grumbling is the play judge that we know right and wrong and they must be wrong, so therefore we're superior. It's a horrible game to play because it robs all the love out of our life. You can't play judge and love someone well at the same time. It won't work. The truth is we all need God's mercy and we all need God's compassion and God will do the sorting out one day soon as the righteous judge. See, church, we live in an instant world where patience is a vice, not a virtue. We're told to be impatient and get what we want in life. And God is encouraging us to the opposite. Be patient because the Lord is coming. Be patient because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We don't imagine this world. Imagine a world where you were consistently practicing godly patience and it was just radiating off you. It was just radiating off you in your home life, radiating off you in your work life. You were never rushing around. You were never cynical. You dropped all your resentment against a coworker who never pulls their weight. You weren't anxious anymore. 
for people to get stuff done or anxious with yourself for not getting enough done. You started showing up 10 minutes early to communion group, ready to love and serve. You don't run around from one thing to the next. You don't overfill your schedule. But instead, you had patient pace, a pace where you can actually love another soul. See, we take this model for Jesus that was never, ever in a rush with anyone. If Jesus was never in a rush, then let us aspire to stop rushing around. Jesus was never in a hurry, but he lived on purpose. We can be a patient people and make space to love those in our life. Church, because our hope is in a God who is good and loves you and is coming soon, we can mature in steadfast faith because he's coming soon, which means all your suffering has an expiration date. Whether in this life or in the end, you'll meet a good God who can't wait to embrace you. Jesus didn't rush as he went to the cross for our sins. He died for all of them, not some of them. It wasn't an express lane, but he took the wrath of God due for our sins all the way down to the dregs. And we've been born again, not to live a rushed, impatient life, but to live a patient, full of steadfast faith, being built. Man, you're not just going to arrive there. You're going to be built there day after day, week after week, year after year. His resurrection, Jesus is from the dead, means the garden of your heart can be different. It can be beautiful. It can be full of rich soil producing a huge crop. Church, the strength of our hope in Christ is revealed in the steadfastness of our faith in suffering. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.